From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. part one of our conversation with Dr. Gene Richardson, he explained the historical inequality that leads to disease. Corrupt governments lead to non-existent health infrastructures and individuals suffer from these structural determinants for generations. Dr. Richardson has studied the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone to gain broader definitions of truth. Using a critical theoretical biosocial approach to public health, Dr. Richardson hopes to include histories of inequality in our understanding of disease, suffering, and survival. The idea that the government is releasing this virus in order to get drug companies to sell, Mm -hmm. you said it's not far from the truth. The idea that we're allowing this corruption to take place, and then, like you said, we take with one hand and give with the other, it's sort of that idea Right, that, that there is a somewhat uh, causal link. You could use the Hannah Arendt approach where she would say, okay, may, maybe we're not guilty of uh, releasing the virus there, but we could be responsible for it. And it's hard to say the we because if I'm saying we as an American, there's a lot of Americans that are also um, uh suffer from these structural inequities. And so that's why the core periphery theory is a problem because all you have to do is turn the lens just to within our country and you can make very similar arguments about health outcomes in the inner city and and those type of things. So that's why I just try to use these as models, frames of thinking, but don't try to hang my hat on them because I also want um, uh, people to realize that it's, it's, it's problematic for me to say we, um, and maybe it's a little easier to say those of us with privilege, those of us in protected affluence. But, um, you know, it's important as a critical theorist to always put the guns on yourself too. you know, to be self-reflexive and self-critical about, um, you know, what are the limitations of your approach? Um, and, um, it also brings up another part of the method, uh, which, uh, to me, you could call uh, methodological relation relationalism. So a lot of these approaches that we've been talking about, oh, there is an individual and he made this choice and he is a survivor. She made this choice. She is a survivor is an individual approach. Um, and, you know, what I got from Buddhist philosophy, but also from some um, some social scientists that are now in this, that they want to, you know, move away from seeing the indiv- the rational individual as the prime determinant of things and look at the actual network, the relations between people, the, the structural forces that link people as the prime focuses of what, of our research and not what this one person is thinking or doing. And we, we published another paper called the Ebola suspects dilemma that gets at that, which says, look, uh, you know, to think of people as, uh, there as, deciding, oh, 
I'm, you know, I'm going to ignore the advice and go to the funeral or I'm going to stay at home when I'm sick uh, because I'm afraid of the, the treatment unit. And, and then I infect all my family, like blaming that person as a super spreader um, uh, does symbolic violence um, uh, in the sense that it, it, again, obscures the way we have seen things operate on the ground. A relational approach might say, um, and here I'm uh, using uh, Pierre Bourdieu, that, uh, you know, people didn't decide not to go to a, an, an Ebola treatment unit because they were ignorant or because um, they... Uh, you know, were selfish. Uh, you could look at them as having a habitus, and a habitus is sort of a structured way of seeing the world. So, a habitus of distrust towards international presence, uh, international campaigns, and their own government's campaigns. Because you look at the 400 years right. previously, and everything leading up to that was an example of their government or some international group taking. Mm -hmm. So why would this be any different? So it's almost a structured way of seeing the world not to want to show up at the next iteration of where you're going to take from me. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do with some of these papers. To think outside the box, uh, the, the dominant paradigms about the way we think about the world, which, um, you know, as far as individuals are concerned, come from economics, that we're all rational agents weighing um, you know, different options and then pursuing the one that, you know, speaks most to us mm -hmm. uh, is another bourgeois way of, of seeing the world because uh, there's a lot less agency outside of protected influence. And one way of thinking about it is this habitus of, you know, structured distrust because there's good reason to, uh, um, to see the world in that way. I wanted to... Um bring it back to the Ebola outbreak and this uh, study that you did where you conducted interviews. Because mm -hmm. I thought um, those interviews were really interesting and shed a lot of light on these uh, issues that you're talking about and the complexity of, mm -hmm. of the response and maybe the ways that the global health community thinks, you know, incorrectly thinks about mm -hmm. some of these issues. And one of the people you interviewed was a miner named Sar. Um, and I wonder if you could tell the listeners about him and okay. sort of his story. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I should qualify is that's I struggle with this. And, you know, I don't want it to come across as the public health world thinking incorrectly, um, because that sort of implies that I have that monopoly on truth. And so I'm always trying to phrase it at, as there are different ways of seeing it. And I think if social justice is... Uh, your mandate that you may come to an agreement that this is a more just way of seeing things. And so that's what we're trying to present with some of these biographies. Mm -hmm. And the idea of these biographies also came from Paul Farmer. So he was in my mentor on this paper. Um, and he's um, kind of pioneered a process where just through, um, and he, you know, he does it much more extensively, for example, in AIDS and Accusation, where uh, it's a long book, but uh, essentially revolves around three people that through even a limited number of interviews that go deep, you can 
help contextualize um, an environment of suffering. And so Saar, whose name was changed for uh, the paper, um, he, he represents a lot of the forces at work in Sierra Leone. So um, early on as a kid, he was abducted into the um, RUF, which was sort of the, the rebel force and during the Sierra Leone Civil War. And then they were known for um, abducting and then using child soldiers. So he spent years as a child soldier, uh, and of course that was a traumatizing experience. And then, um, uh, you know, one way of looking at it is, okay, well, here's a lot of, and, and some people have looked at it this way, uh, that banditry and greed have become the new norm in West Africa. And so there's nothing we can do there because it's just, you know, a, a, a bunch of bandits fighting each other. And of course that's not only racist, but, um, I think, uh, uh, disguises a lot of the structural determinants of that civil war. Um, so here he, here he is a victim of the Mafia. Uh, and we could say the civil war is, uh, is kind of a, a, a downstream um, manifestation of the Mafia. Um, and so after the civil war, he participates in the disarmament campaign. He gets rehabilitated, gets his money, um, plants a farm with it. And then goes back to uh, mining, which he also did as a child. And so exploitation of child labor um, in the mining industry is another path you could trace into his body where, you know, transnational relations of inequality have been built into him. So now we have two paths leading into him. And then a third was he ended up getting Ebola from taking care of his uncle who was sick. And the interesting thing about his uncle was that he, when he got sick, he went to one of the, uh, he went to get treatment and then was deemed not to have, have it. Um, and so, um, you know, a better lab or a, a rapid diagnostic test would have, you know, uh, made that not happen. But instead that infrastructure wasn't there. Uh, he got sick, ended up surviving. Um, and so, He's, he's a survivor of a lot of, you know, different processes, but through each of them, you can trace, um, I think somewhat causally, but not uh, in the causal way that mm -hmm. modern epidemiologists think, um, you know, different historical forces ending up as, uh, manifesting as suffering in his body. Um, even another one was, I think he, he said he had found some diamonds, got some money from it and then uh, lost it in this investment scheme. Um, uh, and so it also shows that exploitation can be local too, because this was a Nigerian group that had come over. Um, so you don't just have the core periphery thing. You also have what um, someone's called internal colonies, which means you know the government in Freetown exploiting them. Then you have regional governments also exploiting. So I try to use some of these theories as as ways of seeing it, but they have their limitations. And so uh, for him, we just tried to present all the different ways to you know help people shake their minds and and wrap around the different ways that you know not just a virus, not just a greedy set of bandits, um, not just his parents. Uh, 
wanting money and 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 uh you know sending him to to do child labor like these type of things are are uh narrow and and two proximal ways of mm-hmm. uh, viewing uh, the the suffering that he's had to endure and his parents probably needing money right and, and then and why did they need money and then yeah. and you know that's part of the processual process you just keep taking it back and it'll go you know uh it'll you know some uh paul farmer's writing a book right now about uh, West Africa and the outbreak, and he, he does a fantastic job of um, of really tracing, you know, how 400 years ago uh, led up to what we're seeing now. So mm-hmm. hopefully that'll be out in the next six months or so, and I recommend it to the listeners. <laughs> Hi, Think Research listeners. We're taking this break to let you know that Harvard Catalyst offers online courses and topics, including grant writing, Mixed Methods Research, and Omics. Right now, we are accepting applications for our Introduction to Mixed Methods Research course. To apply and learn more about all the courses we offer, please visit catalyst.harvard.edu slash online learning. I just thought that story was so interesting when it got to the point that he had found a diamond that he could you know, turn into money and was planning on leaving and going to Europe and then this Nigerian like money scam, which mm-hmm. we all, it's like a punchline here. Like you get the email, like right. I need money. Um, and there's like another layer of, of um, lack of institutions that he couldn't determine that this was a scam and it was allowed right. to proliferate and all that stuff. Well, even, I mean, we have our Madoffs here too, right? right, right and right. Uh, from what I understand, the Shapiro building at the Brigham was built with uh, Ponzi scheme money and it was only found out afterwards. But <laughs> so it's, it permeates this type. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It permeates everywhere, even within the protected affluence. In fact, right. some could say it serves yeah higher echelons right. of said protected affluence, but um, but yeah, uh, another interesting thing is that, yeah, the first thing he thought was to migrate to Europe, which mm-hmm. is what people are doing now. And you can see with the migration crisis, what, what puts people in a place where even now that they have some affluence that they can, uh, locally, um, live well, their, their next thought is to move away from it. And so mm-hmm. it speaks to the conditions there. Everything I've been talking about so far, the way of doing research, the methods, the way of seeing things is part of a biosocial approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of different names for it. Uh, uh, when I did my PhD in anthropology, uh, my qualifying exams were in political ecology, which is s- sort of a similar way of, of what we've been talking about. It includes more environmental things. Um other people have renamed it, uh, you know, eco-social theory, these type of things, but they're all about uh, relational ways of approaching problems. They are about, um, you know, deeply historical ways and then tracing structural determinants. Um, but the examples that we've discussed um, over the course of the conversation are, um, you know, part and parcel of uh, what we would call Barton, uh, a biosocial approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, and we were talking about the term super spreader mm-hmm. too, and it gives this person sort of a nefarious agency. Could you talk about why that term super spreader 
is problematic. Mm -hmm. The definition of super spreader essentially is somebody that infects 10 other people um, or more. And, and so there have been a lot of modeling papers, you know, essentially written from computers in the U.S. That, uh, from people that, you know, haven't stepped foot in West Africa that um, come to the conclusion that, okay, there's always these super spreaders and outbreaks. It's a phenomenon. And then if we, f if we find means of locating these people early, um, then we can uh, mitigate the outbreak because we've stopped the, the people we've identified that um, cause a lot more onward transmission. And papers like this make it into, you know, New England Journal and Lancet and, and the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, all very high impact journals. I basically wrote a similar paper on, um, you know, structural determinants um, and it was in a very low impact journal. And my point is that, you know, the higher impact journals are more read and they're setting the way people think about things. So, you know, most people you talk about super spreader would then see it in this fashion. Um, and if you could think of another world or a, another place with a different vocabulary that actually reserved the word super spreader for, um, mining companies that avoid their taxes. And so I'll go back to the paper we wrote um, about the mining company in Sierra Leone. They've avoided hundreds of millions in tax payments. That Those tax payments would have been enough to fund a health infrastructure that would likely have stopped Ebola in its tracks. Um, so I don't even see it as a stretch of the imagination to call that entity a super spreader because they avoided it they created a situation where that health infrastructure did not exist and therefore that many cases were found. Why, why is it such a stretch to call them a super spreader? And, you know, the re responses you might get w will be, well, it's, it's hard to trace it to them. You know, they, um, we don't know how many people they infected. We can't quantify their contribution. And, and that ends up being what I think of as you know a bourgeois defense because you can't quantify it you end up falling back on the the way of seeing the world that that doesn't challenge your protected affluence seeing the mining company as a super spreader because tiffany's in uh invested in them and i even bought my wife a diamond so i'm complicit in it um you know uh taking it out that far helps us see how all of us have some potentially Hannah Arendt responsibility in um, super spreading. If we share responsibility in it, however minimal, I think it behooves us to continue to engage phenomena like these with a critical theoretical biosocial approach so that we can all come together on more just ways of, you know, and I think the Kimberly process was a very just approach to it, but I know that mining company is still there and hasn't paid its taxes in the last two years. So it didn't solve, uh, some of these rapacious corporate extraction that still goes on. So there's still plenty of, uh, work to be done in, you know, gaining transparency there, getting accountability, these type of things. And there are NGOs that work on it. Um, and, and so, uh, I guess I would, you know, encourage people wherever they see that they can 
do their part, whether it's trying to reframe some of the vocabulary, where it's working for, you know, Transparency International, whether it's, um, you know, donating to this cause. Um, I just think that um, we have to be a, a lot more radical than the development approach because, you know, we've deconstructed it a bit here. Um, and I'll go into it more in the book I'm writing. Um, but uh, for the listeners, uh, if you're interested in these type of things, I would recommend a book called The Divide by Jason Hickel, I think, and it came out this year. And it goes deeper into a lot of these things I'm talking about from the political economic side. Um, my book, which maybe we can uh, segue into, sure, yeah. is more about the public health world, the global health mm -hmm. world. Um, you know, even though I'm an anthropologist, I don't study, you know, uh, I didn't go to Africa to study African groups and, and, uh, and write about them. I actually study the global health tribe, um, whether that's the WHO or Doctors Without Borders or Partners in Health or CDC, um, all groups that I've, uh, worked or interned for before and you know try to show how we are just as strange an entity as any uh tribe that's out there and if you really and we meaning at, the public health tribe yeah the global yeah. health yeah, the yeah global health tribe now mm -hmm. i'm talking about um the way we parse the world is idiosyncratic is not based on any capital t truth and does uh and it, and it does service um for uh, I think mostly um, these groups in protected affluence. And in the book, I call this bourgeois reason, the type of thinking that has become common sense that actually maintains uh, dynamics in the world so that you continue to live in your uh, protected affluence. So like the critique of super spreading is one way of looking at it. I do another critique of modeling and how you know modeling infectious disease modeling looks at a lot of um, proximal determinants, like who, who went here and who went to this funeral and this and that. You know, there's no model, uh, and we'll try to do one, that has, you know, the MAFA as one of its variables because they would say, oh, well, that's unquantifiable. Well, if it is, then social science should be working to uh, be able to characterize these forces in such a way. To me, it's obvious. Uh, to me, the anthropological work of Paul Farmer and other groups is enough evidence. Um, but, you know, that doesn't quite fly as well in the global health world where there is this new, um, you know, big data movement. And, you know, we're going to get our answers no longer from theory and qualitative analysis, but from all the data from cell phones and social media and whatnot. And so one of my chapters is called Big Data, no, Not So Big Data, and Ebola virus disease. And it's a, and it, you know, to sum it up in a sentence, it would be, you know, big data is not big enough to know, uh, to tell you where that mining company is hiding its profits in offshore shell accounts. And so, um, you know, I look at the Panama Papers as a much better structural intervention than whatever infectious disease model I read in, in PNAS. Um, and so the book is about exploring not only the structural violence that is committed uh, by the type of work we do, but also, you know, uh, taking a critical theoretical approach and seeing what is the ideological work 
that um, that that global health does. And you know, Foucault summed it up pretty well. He said something like, "People know what they do, and they know why they do what they do, but they what they don't know is what what they do does." Meaning, they think they're doing good work, writing a model, trying to help future containment. And I say that they're reifying bourgeois views of the world that that continue to prevent uh, critical structural analyses of what is actually going on. And the thing is, what I'm doing is not novel. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot from Paul Farmer, but you go back to, um, you know, some of the African leaders like Julius Nerere and Kwame Nkrumah. They were saying all this about, you know, uh, Nkrumah was saying this about neocolonialism in the 60s. I mean, it's right out there. This is how it works. This is what they're doing. This is how they exploit. And to have that marginalized, I think, takes a lot of ideological work. And, mm-hmm. and it's built into public health science. And so essentially, uh, you know, in a nutshell, the book is trying to translate Kwame Nkrumah it, to... Uh, you know, public health scientists in their language, you know, showing how uh, the ways we now have of parsing suffering in global health obscure the message of, of you know, the Kwame Nkrumahs of the world. Mm-hmm. And you said that the book is speaking to public health officials in their language. Do you hope that that's the audience for the book or do you want it to be it's hard. Yeah, that's something I also struggle with. Um, and I think, you know, struggle is a good word for pragmatists because you're always struggling with vocabulary. You're struggling with truth. And, you know, it's what the Arabic word uh, mujahid means. You know, it comes from the, the root jihad. That, and I'm not Islamic, but, you know, it's just an example of, oh, well, if I say the word jihad in this, everyone thinks of terrorism when jihad really means a, a struggling um, and it can mean you're struggling against your own soul. You're struggling with, uh, um, you know, your own impulses. Me, I struggle with the way um, the the world I live in parses and describes what they see um, and how the categories that come to represent common sense for us are actually ways of seeing the world that keep us in this uh and remember i'm putting us in quotes um in this bubble of of protected affluence and so what i struggle with in the book is yeah i want to speak to the um you know the global health uh practitioners i also want to speak some to the public um and even even the social scientists who will say oh well you know this isn't this isn't too novel like we're doing uh you know, this is STS, you know, science and technology studies 101 is what somebody told me. It's like, well, no global health practitioner is reading any of that. So trying to translate some of the insights from social science, from Kwame Nkrumah to a broader crowd without being too popular because I am uh, an assistant professor at Harvard and I've actually been warned that a really popular book will not do you service because then you're, you haven't been academic enough. So uh, there's always interesting, you know, uh, forces that, you know, shape all of the way we're doing it. And so, you know, my main thing is, can I 
be critical enough to to um, subvert the the privilege and the and the you know bourgeois reason that I've grown up with. And I'm not going to do it uh, definitively, but uh, I think from my experience and really just listening to people on the ground, and that's the you know the mainstay of anthropology is listening. I think I've heard it enough that I can now do the job of translating. And so maybe I you know see myself more as a translator than a uh, uh, inventor or anything like that. Mm. Uh, well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. All right. Thanks so much. On Wednesday, November 14th, Dr. Richardson will be presenting as part of the Harvard Medical School's Department of Global Health and Social Medicine seminar series in Boston. For details, visit ghsm.hms.harvard.edu. Next time on Think Research. The focus of nursing science is to really um, support individuals with their experience in health, whether that be cancer or cancer risk or being a caregiver to somebody with cancer. And so it was really fitting for nursing science to kind of enter into this cancer genetics space and understand how as you know, genetic science is rapidly evolving, we can keep up and make sure we're supporting individuals to live with the information and live with it well. Dr. Megan Underhill shares with us the importance of patient support and caring for and advising cancer patients and their at-risk loved ones. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.com dot harvard.edu slash think research.